Hello and welcome to the June 2012 edition of the Lesbian Gay Law Notes podcast. I'm Brad Snyder, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar Association of Greater New York. And with me is Arthur Leonard of New York Law School, the chief editor and writer of Lesbian Gay Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal developments affecting the LGBT community here and abroad. Happy Pride, Art. Thank you, Brad. Do you want to give us a reflection on this, the June 2012 Pride Month, about where we are and where we're going? Well, I would just note all of the multicolored balloons flying around the microphone that we've set up <laughs> to get us into the mood and say that we are evolving. Oh, that brings us to the lead story, invoking our president, President of the United States, President Obama. You lead the... Is there uh, another president? Yeah, well, uh, you know. There's there's international listeners, so when we okay. say our president, it could be someone else. Okay. Can I start now? Yes. Okay. So are you lead this month's issue of Law Notes with a story that I think is as much a uh, political story as a legal one, uh, specifically President Obama's decision to announce his support for marriage equality. His decision also came, I believe, one day after North Carolina voters had approved a constitutional amendment limiting marriage to one man and one woman. And who and who's the lucky couple in North Carolina? <laughs> Only one man and one woman can get married. Um, they already had a federal – they already had a, a state statute right. uh, doing the same thing, but they had to be doubly sure. Well, that's that because they were very afraid that the wild-eyed radicals on the North Carolina Supreme Court might order the state to allow same-sex couples Yeah, there was a strong possibility of that happening. S strong possibility. <laughs> okay. So they have this great constitutional amendment uh, in North Carolina. But around the same time, sitting U.S. president, uh, first time ever, announces his support for marriage equality. And I, I guess I would start, Art, by asking you um, to give us some context for how significant it is to have a sitting president as opposed to some of our former presidents who have since uh, leaving office come out in favor of uh, marriage equality. Well, it's, it's very significant because the president is also the head of the Democratic Party. And the president sets the tone discussion of public issues, and it was interesting to note that within a day or two of the president making his announcement and the majority leader of the Senate makes he's in support of same-sex marriage and the governor of Illinois comes out and says, I'm in support of same-sex marriage, and uh, the NAACP, as, as you're going to discuss later, their board votes in favor of same-sex marriage, and, and in fact, uh, development that postdates the newsletter by maybe a day. Uh, the conservative movement of Judaism in the United States, uh, the Rabbinical Assembly, which is the association of 1,600 conservative Jewish rabbis in the United States, their Committee on Law and Standards passed a resolution authorizing conservative rabbis to perform same-sex marriages in their synagogues, which is a big cultural breakthrough. And all of this comes within a few weeks after the president changes his position. So I think the president is signaling a change in the culture. When it, it comes to a time where the president of the United States will endorse same-sex marriage, we have arrived at a cultural turning point. And I, so I guess the answer is it's a pretty big deal. That it's, it's a big deal, even though the federal government literally doesn't have anything to do with deciding who gets marriage licenses in this country. Although, as, as we'll be discussing with our next case, uh, the federal government officially doesn't recognize same-sex marriages even when they're legal where they're performed. So we'll, we'll get into the constitutional Fair enough. Well. I, I do want to ask you to take a step back on the, uh, the issue of uh, – well, not literally take a step back. You can't see that Art Leonard just pushed his chair backwards. But the um, – 
President Obama, as, as, as you've written about, has signaled that he was evolving on the issues. So I was wondering if you can speak a little bit about his evolution and well, whether, was, you, whether it does reflect just sort of a change in the culture or whether he's been a little bit ahead in some respects. Well, it's re-evolving because when he was running for state legislative position in Illinois back in the 1990s, he responded to a questionnaire from uh, a gay political group in Illinois that he was in support of same-sex marriage. Uh, and I think he's gotten a lot of flack for then sort of going into the closet on his support for same-sex marriage when he ran for the U.S. Senate and subsequently when he ran for president. Uh, but people have to understand that when running for different offices, one is dealing with different constituencies. And official positions on particular issues may change depending on what office you're running for. Uh, I think someone who's running to uh, uh, represent an entire state in the Senate may feel that he has to take into account the views beyond the very liberal municipality in which he was running for a, a local district for a state legislature. So I can be a little bit forgiving Yeah, you're certainly that. very forgiving. Because he, he, he always supported uh, and was very vocal about supporting equal rights for same-sex couples through some sort of civil union status, and uh, he has now come to the view that as president with a national constituency, he can support same-sex marriage and that it's a credible position for someone to take who's president of the United States. And, and let me ask you, you've spoken now a little bit about the impact on public opinion and some other constituencies, but in terms of the legal impact, I mean, is this, a, is this something that courts, and obviously the court we care most about is the U.S. Supreme Court, but is the, the fact of the president announcing this view, does that influence a court's view of how to decide the, the variety of litigations that we'll be talking about that will inevitably make their way up? Or is this sort of uh, you know, in its own realm and the court will do what it's going to do? Well, I definitely think the court will do what it's going to do. I think it shouldn't affect the Supreme Court. They should be deciding cases based on the law. Not, uh, not based on the opinion of the president. Uh, the opinion of the attorney general should count more to them. And the, the attorney general, of course, supports same-sex marriage. He's, uh, attorney General Holder has made that clear. And, in fact, uh, his department decided a year ago not to defend the Defense of Marriage Act anymore because they felt it was unconstitutional. Well, then you do, you do speculate then that the, a natural extension of that position, which you just talked about, would be for this administration – to in the context of perhaps the Perry case, the Prop A case in California that will make its way up, they w it would be a natural extension for them to argue that excluding same-sex couples from the right to mar marry would be unconstitutional. Is that a, is that well, a, a point of view that's going to be coming? That's an additional step that would be very interesting if it happened. You know, I, I look back at the uh, don't ask, don't tell policy in the military. Uh, the ban on openly gay people serving in the military, and the president's position on that when he ran for office in 2008 was that the ban is bad policy and should be repealed. His position was not that the ban was unconstitutional, and in fact his administration continued to defend it in court right up to the last minute. And uh, even after the repeal went into effect, uh, rather than let a trial court decision holding it unconstitutional stand, they moved the Ninth Circuit to have it vacated as moot. Uh, in effect, they were saying that the decision whether gays can serve or not serve is a political decision. It shouldn't be decided by the courts. Now, it's hard to tell exactly where Obama stands on whether the right to marry is a political decision that shouldn't be decided by the courts. And he may have that view.
Mm-hmm. That's so, interesting. And so it's it's but but it seems to me that his position on DOMA at this point is that uh, if states decide to allow same-sex couples to marry, the federal government, as a matter of law, should recognize those marriages the same way it recognizes other marriages. So not only is the Justice Department not defending DOMA, they've now been filing briefs and appearing at oral arguments to argue that DOMA is unconstitutional. So that's a step beyond. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's still not all the way to arguing that same-sex couples have a constitutional right to marry. And, and this contrast will come up in the discussion of the, the First Circuit Derma case, which we'll right. get to. But I, I want to pause a bit on the demographics issue, which you pointed out in your story. Um, specifically, that support for same-sex marriage was, as usual, highest among younger respondents, with close to 70 percent of adults under the age of 30 stating their support, over 51 percent stating their support as strong. Now, we're, we're approaching a presidential election where obviously we can expect the outcome of that may have some impact. But have we reached a point in public opinion, in your view, where some of this progress um, can't be turned back? Or is it literally tenuous enough despite the, the demographic factors in our favor and the, the public opinion that seems to be going the right way? Is it still tenuous enough that this can all be undone? I think we have momentum on this issue, and uh, I actually put together a chronology of what's been happening on same-sex marriage and the law since January of this year for a talk that I was giving uh, last week at the end of May, and I was startled because I report on each of these developments as they happen in law notes. Every month we have a few items about marriage. But I hadn't taken the time to put them all together on a timeline and see what's happening. And it's just extraordinary what's happened this year on same-sex marriage. We had three states just in the month of February pass same-sex marriage laws. Now, one was vetoed in New Jersey. We'll have to see how that turns out. They have till January 2014 to try to get an override on the veto. Uh, The laws were signed in Washington State and Maryland. They're going to be on the ballot in the fall. Uh, in the past week, we've had announcements from the opponents of same-sex marriage in both states that they believe they will have enough signatures to get it on the ballot. But the polling so far seems to suggest that it, the laws may not be repealed. The laws may survive. And especially in Maryland, where it seems that local polling shows that after the president's statement, support for same-sex marriage among African-American respondents in Maryland drastically surged upwards. Uh, The majority were opposed to same-sex marriage in polling prior to the president's statement. In polling after the president's statement and the NAACP board vote, the following week it flipped, and basically uh, now there's a substantial majority that are saying they're in support. So this is a way that uh, the president's statement may have a political impact in helping the uh, recently passed marriage law in Maryland survive the balloting in November. So then uh, we'll close the segment on a question of them. What is the deal with North Carolina? What is the deal with North Carolina? All right, North Carolina vote was the day before the president's statement. And this is the problem. The problem is that the support for same-sex marriage nationally is now a majority, but it's unevenly spread. There are parts of the country where there's more support, parts where there's less support. North Carolina was the last remaining state of the old Confederacy that didn't have an anti-gay marriage amendment. Which was probably a, a, a sore an, point for them. Yeah, it's an anomaly. <laughs> I, I'm sure the Republicans in that state were absolutely embarrassed <laughs> not to have a constitutional amendment. I mean, the Democrats in the legislature voted against it, but it got put, put on the ballot. And although it passed, it didn't pass by an overwhelming majority. It was, I think it was something like 52 percent or something like that. 
so uh, you know, I think we're making progress. And if you if you break down the state of North Carolina into counties, all the counties with significant cities and and public universities and things like that went against the amendment. Mm-hmm. And it was basically passed because North Carolina is, by population, predominantly a rural state, and the rural counties voted in favor of it. All right. So let's uh, let's leave it there on President Obama's historic decision. We'll take a short break. When we return, we'll continue on the marriage theme with a significant decision from the First Circuit striking down Section 3 of DOMA. Stay with us. We are back talking about a decision handed down just as you, Arthur Leonard, writer of Law Notes, thought you were putting the finishing touches on the June issue of Law Notes. It's a ruling from the First Circuit in the Consolidated Appeals of Gill v. Office of Personnel Management and Commonwealth of Massachusetts versus U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. These are DOMA cases, as many of our listeners are familiar with. And these cases concern claims that DOMA violates the Fifth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, specifically Section 3, which defines, quote, marriage and, quote, spouse for the purposes of federal law in a way that excludes same-sex couples, even those who are married in marriage equality jurisdictions. All right, um, let's touch on that a little bit more. You note that this case does not concern the issue of whether same-sex couples have a constitutional right to marry, and this contrasts with the Perry litigation over Prop 8 in California. Can you explain that difference a little bit for our listeners? Well, in the in the Perry case, as people will recall, originally called Perry versus Schwarzenegger, uh, proponents of a state constitutional amendment to ban same-sex marriage were defending their amendment in court Uh, It had passed after the California Supreme Court had held that same-sex couples had a right to marry in California under the state constitution, and couples had been marrying for about five months. And then uh, in November of 2008, Proposition 8 was passed. So in the way that case was litigated, the way it was presented to the district judge, uh, Judge Vaughn Walker, was that same-sex couples have a right under the 14th Amendment to Equal Protection Clause to marry which may not be denied by the state. And that's the basis on which he decided the case. And then it went up to the Ninth Circuit, uh, and a three-judge panel ruled earlier this year in February that they didn't have to decide that question to decide this case, that the issue before them was not whether same-sex couples have a right to marry. It was whether the state could take away the right to marry after it had been granted. And so they said... It's sexual orientation discrimination, that sexual orientation discrimination in the Ninth Circuit is decided under the rational basis test, which means the question is, is there any rational justification for taking away the right to marry from same-sex couples after it had been extended and after thousands of same-sex couples had gotten married? And they decided that there wasn't. There was no rational basis for it. When they looked back at the campaign that was run to pass Prop 8, it was clear to them that the campaign was not based on any kind of objective policy grounds. It was all, uh, it was all rhetoric. It was uh, bias. It was stereotyping. Uh, that there was nothing in the way of sound public policy behind Prop 8. And so they held, without a rational basis, Prop 8 falls. Uh, the question in this case that was decided last week, May 31st, by the First Circuit, uh, was in some ways conceptually like what the three-judge panel did in the Ninth Circuit. They said uh, the issue is whether Congress has a rational justification for not recognizing same-sex marriages when states are performing them. 
You know, states are allowing people to be married, and Congress is coming along and saying the federal government's going to ignore your marriage. So what's the reason for ignoring the marriages? Is there a rational basis for it? Well, and so just to jump in there, which I'm sure you're getting to, I mean, the court ultimately here considers some of those reasons and, and finds none of them persuasive uh, in any meaningful way. Can you? Well, before we even get to that, we have to talk about the standard of review, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, I, I uh, was going to do that. Because I, let's take a step back and talk about the, the standard, standard of review. review. Right. Yes. Okay. Because in the Ninth Circuit, as, as a result of circuit precedent dating back to the early 1990s, which for some reason the Ninth Circuit has not seen fit to reconsider yet, uh, the rule is the rational basis test. Uh, and no heightened scrutiny, no strict scrutiny, no requirement of the state to show a compelling interest. In the First Circuit, there is a decision by a three-judge panel of the circuit from a few years ago <clears throat> in a case that was challenging the Don't Ask, Don't Tell military policy, the Cook case. And in that case, the circuit held that the rational basis test was the test for sexual orientation discrimination. And they based that on their reading of Romer versus Evans, the 1996 Supreme Court case, which declared unconstitutional a, an initiative amendment of the Colorado Constitution, which denied any kind of discrimination protection for gay people. Uh, and the Supreme Court, in its decision in Romer, was a little odd in the way it approached the case. Uh, Justice Kennedy, who wrote the opinion for the court, said this is such a sweeping, unprecedented exclusion of a particular group from equal treatment that we can't even use the normal equal protection analysis here. It defies the normal equal protection analysis. It's just on its face a violation of equal protection. Uh, it doesn't, doesn't meet the smell test, you know. Uh, and, and so the... The court basically said, we can see no rational justification for it. And they didn't get into the question of whether there should be heightened scrutiny or whether there should be strict scrutiny. They, it just wasn't necessary, and it, it just seemed to them that it, this was just so obviously unconstitutional there was no need for it, which is a little odd because it was a 6-3 to three decision. So obviously three justices did think there was justification for it. But uh, as a result of the failure of the Supreme Court in Romer to address the traditional analysis of whether you have a suspect classification, of whether you should have heightened scrutiny, lower courts have taken that as a signal that as of now, the rational basis test is the test to apply in evaluating either state or federal laws that are attacked on equal protection grounds for discriminating based on sexual orientation. But this court, it, it, it's a very, very interesting decision. They, they say, okay, First Circuit precedent is we don't use heightened scrutiny. We don't use strict scrutiny. We don't require the government to show a compelling interest. But on the other hand, something more than traditional classic rational basis review seems to be called for here. And they do this, uh, it's worth noting, the First Circuit does this, uh, applies this sort of unusual, or you'll describe, form of, yeah. of, of, of analysis. Um, the, the lower court, the district court, I just thought it was applying a traditional rational basis, basis test. And found no rational basis. Right. Uh, but the, the Court of Appeals even seems to suggest that if you're using the classic rational basis test, you might uphold DOMA Section 3. But they said something more is required here because we look – at a handful of Supreme Court cases, uh, one from the 
one from the uh, 70s, one from the 80s, and one from the 90s. From the 70s, we have the Marino case, which was a case about the food stamp law. And when Congress passed the food stamp law, they put in an amendment to disqualify hippie communes. But they didn't call it that. They called it households with unrelated adults living together. But the legislative history shows they didn't want food stamps going to help support hippie communes. And the Supreme Court said, well, that's because they dislike hippies. That's not a policy justification. That has nothing to do with the purposes for having a food stamp law, which was about subsidizing agriculture and fighting hunger. And we don't see how this exclusion rationally advances any of those policies of the statute. So they held it unconstitutional. They didn't hold that hippies are a suspect classification or a, a, a protected group or something. They just said – Well, it's sort of – and for me, it, it seems as if they're, they, they're sort of signaling, you know, we're going to peel the onion here a little bit. Is If we see – when we take a peek and we see that there's – we know there's a history here of going after a particular group for whatever right. reason and whether they're hippies or they're gays or whatever right. the case may be. We're not going to just apply just a normal rational basis test. It's going to be rational basis plus. A little more critical in looking at the justifications. Mm -hmm. Same thing in the case from the 1980s, the Claiborne case. This was a case where a uh, municipality passed special zoning rules to exclude group homes for people with mental disabilities from particular neighborhoods. And the Supreme Court said, well, we're not going to hold that people with mental disabilities are a suspect classification or something like that. But we are going to say that when it seems clear that the legislature was motivated entirely by fear or bias or stereotypes about a particular group, we're going to be a little bit more careful about analyzing the justifications that they present. It's not heightened scrutiny. It's not strict scrutiny. It's rational basis. But we're going to, we're going to make rational basis meaningful. We're going to ask is this really rational? Is this really justifiable as a matter of policy? And then in Romer, where they didn't go through all this agonizing about should it be a suspect class or something like that, they just said it's clearly discriminatory on its face. It's motivated entirely by prejudice. Therefore, we strike it down. Do we do we prefer one of these as a legal standard? I mean, we've talked about cases where the court has done us a favor of applying Heighten and rational in saying it's, it fails both. Well, sometimes courts have relied both on a traditional rational basis and on some form of heightened scrutiny. But the important thing for us in thinking about the future of this case is counting to five on the U.S. Supreme Court, which is how you win cases. And this opinion, it seems to me, is very, very well tailored to appeal to Justice Kennedy, whose vote will be crucial in getting a majority to affirm it. And that does bring us to a point we've discussed offline a bit, is, which is you know these, these two different types of cases, the Perry case and, and the Section 3 DOMA challenges. And there are those in, in the community and beyond who would very much like this to be the case that the U.S. Supreme Court hears first. Um, and I was wondering if you could speak to that uh, well, phenomenon this, a bit. This I mean, there are people out there who feel this, that This way, depends right? how you define community. <laughs> Because if you're talking about the uh, community of LGBT public interest law firms, they didn't want to bring the issue of whether same-sex couples have a constitutional right to marry to the Supreme Court. Their uh, whole strategy for advancing same-sex marriage was a state-by-state -state strategy, which, by the way, is what President Obama announced in his uh, May 8th statement. He said he thought this was an issue to be worked out state-by-state -state, uh, because marriage is traditionally a matter of state law. Uh, so the idea behind this lawsuit, the First Circuit case, 
was to chip away at the issue by removing the obstacle of DOMA so that when you achieve marriage uh, in a particular state, you get all the rights of marriage, not just the state law rights of marriage. You also get all the federal law rights of marriage. Which given the many. number of marriage equality jurisdictions we have now, I mean that would be a pretty big we have bite half, of the apple. We have half a dozen. Mm -hmm. if, if the two states, uh, Maryland and Washington, survive the referendum, we get two more right there. If the Perry case ends favorably, uh, we get California, which when you add all these states up together, we're getting close to half the country. Uh, and there is momentum. In fact, uh, one of the things that's happened over the past six months or so is several new marriage cases have been initiated. We have Illinois, just filed at the end of May. We have a case in Nevada that Lambda Legal filed. We have a case pending in Hawaii. There's a case pending in Virginia. So uh, there's a case pending in New Jersey. Uh, if the uh, uh, governor's veto can't be overruled politically, it may go to the New Jersey Supreme Court. So uh, there are lots more jurisdictions where we may get same-sex marriage as a matter of state law over the next year or so. And, and to be clear, I mean, the Supreme Court could certainly rule in this instance that Section 3 is unconstitutional while at the same time either punting on the question of the constitutional right to marry or, in fact, saying that there is no constitutional right to marry. Well, I, I think that if you got a five-judge majority on the Supreme Court to affirm this First Circuit opinion, it would probably be a pretty narrow opinion avoiding the question of whether same-sex couples have a right to marry because that might lose your majority. Right, except uh, they may have to visit that in right. the case of uh, the, the Prop 8 case. Right. They, they might have to. Uh, or they might not. They might. It, it depends how it goes up, how the, how the cert petition is framed. Now, uh, the cert petition would be framed, of course, by the proponents of Prop 8. And in this case, the cert petition uh, is going to be framed by Paul Clement, the former Solicitor General who was hired by the bipartisan legal advisory group of the Blag. House of Representatives, Blag, uh, to defend the statute because Attorney General Holder and President Obama won't defend the statute. Let me, let me ask you one, one other last, last thing on this case that you do emphasize, and I was wondering if I could hear your thoughts about it, is that um, the majority of the three-judge panel in this case was appointed by Republican presidents, uh, in this instance the first George Bush and, and Ronald Reagan. Um, and what do you think the significance of that is? And is, is that going to affect any of the rhetoric about these left-wing activist judges who are trying to redefine marriage? I mean, here we have a majority well, Republican panel. We immediately got the rhetoric from the National Organization for Marriage. As soon as this opinion came out, uh, there was a statement from the National Organization for Marriage, which is, of course, misnamed. It should be called the National, uh, National Organization Against Same-Sex Marriage. But uh, they immediately said, oh, wild-eyed radical judges, you know. And, uh, yeah, Ronald Reagan appointed radical judges to the courts of appeals, as we all know, uh, after that careful vetting in the Justice Department that they <laughs> did back in the 80s, uh, which they did. Yes. I mean, there was quite an ideological test for court of appeals mm -hmm. appointments, which uh, uh, means that the uh, judges appointed by Ronald Reagan were pretty conservative. But one of the things it tells you is that what – is conservative opinion has really shifted, and uh, the Republican Party has really shifted to the right from where it was when Ronald Reagan was president. And, and certainly Ted Olson's advocacy in the Prop right. 8 case is another illustration and we, of that. we have to remember the trial judge in this case, the Gill case, was appointed by Richard Nixon, uh, who was rather moderate and not so ideological in his Court of Appeals appointments. Uh, but uh, it, it seems to me that this case falls so clearly within the rhetoric of Romer versus Evans, of Justice Kennedy's opinion. In fact, uh, 
one of the memorable phrases from Roma versus Evans was that this was such a sweeping disqualification. Well, Judge Boudin, in writing this opinion, refers to Section 3 of DOMA as a sweeping general federal definition of marriage. And I think the choice of the word sweeping was very intentional there. It was evoking Romer. That, that's, that's fascinating, actually, Art. Uh, we're going to take a, another break, and when we return, we'll be discussing a case out of New York concerning whether falsely calling someone gay is still slander per se in that jurisdiction. Stay with us. We are back talking about the case of Unati v. Mincola. This is a New York case in which a unanimous four-judge panel of the New York Appellate Division Third Department rejected old precedents and ruled that falsely describing a person as lesbian, gay, or bisexual is no longer regarded as slander per se under New York tort law. Um, Art, you and I have talked about these kind of laws before. Um, and I, I was wondering if we could start with how prevalent these types of uh, falsely calling someone gay is slander per se, akin to almost calling someone a criminal or something else really bad, uh, and whether we are starting to see these things falling away in other jurisdictions. Yes, there have been a few uh, other jurisdictions that have rejected the traditional common law rule. I remember when I was taking my bar review course in 1977, which really dates me for you guys, uh, I was outraged in the bar review course when they're going through New York tort law and they said, here are the categories of per se defamation in New York. And they said, calling someone homosexual. Was this the, 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 the initial stirring of your activism or were you already a uh, – No, I had actually written a paper when I was in law school about decriminalization of sodomy laws. So this was right in your wheelhouse, this, this additional uh, yeah. insult. But when I heard that, I was outraged. I had never heard that before. Uh, the first year torts class didn't cover defamation and I didn't take the, the elective on that. So I was just shocked. Uh, but then you think about it, and actually in the 1970s, calling someone gay could really damage their reputation. It was – gay sex was against the law just about you know, almost everywhere. Uh, and uh, the issue of whether openly gay people could be admitted to practice law in New York had just recently been litigated. Uh, so there was a lot of social stigma around being called gay. And what this decision marks is the change in society to the extent that a unanimous panel of appellate judges, not in New York City, this is the third department, this is uh, upstate judges, decided that it no longer was good policy or consistent with social realities to presume that falsely calling somebody gay was going to harm their reputation. But, but you talk in that sentence about you know society, and I guess one of my questions is how you go about framing the constituency you're looking at and determining just how bad it is to call someone gay, meaning there are plenty of communities in New York and certainly elsewhere where still calling someone gay is pretty much one of the worst things that one could have done to them, falsely calling someone gay, of course. So I'm wondering if, I mean, here no, the court I looks... Think, at, I think in those, those communities you're talking about... Saying that someone performs abortions would probably be worse. Uh, well, you know, they're, they're, okay, fair enough. But the point is, is that the court here looks at some developments at the national level, the repeal of "Don't Ask, Don't Tell," uh, looks at the local level in New York, the enactment of marriage equality. But I guess wondering, well, just you may live in a place where, okay, that's well and good, but if if my neighbor thinks I'm gay, that's pretty much worse than him thinking I stole. I mean, one has to admit that that probably exists. There are probably people who consider it consider that to be a very damning thing to say about somebody, that they're gay. The point is that this decision doesn't say 
that people who are falsely labeled gay can't sue for defamation. What it says is if they're suing for a spoken defamation as opposed to written defamation in, in slander, which is spoken defamation, uh, if something does not fall into the per se category, it means you have to prove that you actually suffered some kind of economic harm, something tangible in order to maintain the action. Uh, so I think that's an important distinction. You know, if, someone, right? if someone was described as gay and a rumor goes around that they're gay and then they get fired by mm-hmm. a homophobic employer, they can bring a slander action and they can uh, allege special damages, the loss of a job. Uh, and uh, so in cases where uh, someone is suing really because of their emotional distress or something like that, in this case what happened is uh, Mr. Yanadi was dating a woman and they were engaged to be married, and some officious busybody in the community <laughs> who uh, heard a rumor that Mr. Yanati was gay, she told someone who told someone who told the, the, the girl's mother, who told her daughter, you don't want to marry that guy, and the engagement was broken I, I, I want you to. I, I want you to do what you love to do, uh, and I mean that. You well, don't I, love I should, do, I should do accents. Uh, no, I want you to speculate now for a moment. The, the, the facts here are so bizarre to me in a sense, even though they're so common in some of these cases. The girlfriend finds out through the rumor mill that her boyfriend, her fiancé, may be gay, yeah. is gay. Well, someone he says, says that it's false. That's yeah. his whole claim. Yeah. So she dumps him? Yeah. Does that not suggest that maybe – She doesn't want to be married to someone for, who has these rumors circulating that he's gay. <laughs> well, I guess what I'm getting at, there's actually a legal question embedded. Yeah. Is how does the court even go about – Addressing the falsehood part of this. I mean, is there some sort of um, parade of, 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 of intimate partners to prove whether or not, in fact, he or she is or is not gay? Well, that would constitute discrimination against virgins who wouldn't well, be able to come up with this kind of evidence. How do you prove that you've been falsely called gay? Well, I'm, I'm afraid we're going to have to resort to a device known as a penile plethysmograph. Have you heard of this? I have no idea what that is. Oh, they, they use it with sex offenders uh, to uh, – Oh, I do know what this <laughs> is. Know I didn't know the exact. <laughs> okay. It doesn't take me long to catch on, okay. though. <laughs> how, how do you prove whether someone is gay or not? Well, remember the movie Clockwork Orange? Yeah, uh, I, I do. Okay. I do. Wow. Wow. Okay. Well, that answer, I, another one of my rhetorical questions answered very well yes. by Professor Arthur Lambda. Oh, and we should, we should mention that Lambda Legal filed an amicus brief in this case on behalf of the More great work from yes. Lambda. Uh, do we have anything else to, to note on this case other on than New case. York was sort of late to the party yes, on New this York a little was, bit? New York was late to the party. One state that hasn't arrived at the party yet is Texas, which has always struck me as kind of odd because, after all, in Lawrence versus Texas, the court struck down the Texas sodomy law, which was traditionally the underpinning – Right, and, and that's worth emphasizing. This is another example of the continuing import of the legacy of the Lawrence cases in all sorts of places right. showing up, and this is one This of court cites Lawrence mm-hmm. and, and uh, says getting rid of sodomy laws really knocks the props out of the old slander per se doctrine. Well said. Uh, we are going to take our last very short break and conclude with our Of Note segment, during which we'll mention some notable, infuriating, or hilarious developments in the world of LGBT legal news. We are back to finish the podcast with our of note segment. Art, what do you, I haven't asked you yet. What do you have of note? What do I have of note? Yes. Well, there's, there's this one case that uh, just struck me as so interesting that I used it for an exam question on my sexuality in the law class this past semester. It's the case of Stroder against the Commonwealth of Kentucky Cabinet for Health and Family <laughs> Services. Mr. Stroder was a probationary employee there, uh, had gone through training program as an adjudicator, a claims adjudicator and was approaching the end of his probationary period. 
And it just so happened that somebody else, a former employee, sued the agency claiming they had been subjected to sexual harassment by their supervisor. And in preparing to respond to the complaint, the agency assigned one of its in-house lawyers to review all the emails that had gone back mm. and forth between the supervisor this and the This is employees. like everyone's worst fear. Yes. Right? And so they reviewed all the emails uh, in the supervisor's inbox. And Mr. Stroder, of course, had exchanged emails with the supervisor. And uh, some of the emails – They were a bit sassy. They were a bit sassy. And they – Mr. Stroder, who was openly gay, who is openly gay, mm -hmm. had uh, made uh, comments about his boyfriend and had used sort of – kind of gay slang, bitchy Vernacular, language stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and there was another employee, a, a heterosexual married woman mm. who had been hired on the same date as Mr. Stroder, uh, gone through the same tra training, doing the same job, and also coming up on the end of probation. And she had also done emails that came up in this uh, review, including she had circulated throughout the office uh, a link to a picture of naked men in a kitchen with kitchen uh, utensils and stuff strategically concealing private parts. <laughs> I mean, and she'd said some raunchy stuff around. And it seems that's that okay, though. It's, it seems that the uh, agency had a zero tolerance policy for probationary employees. If you find any violation of the rules, you can be let go. And they also had a, uh, an email usage rule for using your email account. And this was violated by both of these probationary employees, but they decided just to focus on the gay employee, and they discharged him the day before his end of probation on grounds of misuse of the email. And they didn't discharge the woman. In fact, they passed her through probation, and she became a permanent employee. So he sued under the Equal Protection Clause. Uh, couldn't sue under anti-discrimination law because Kentucky doesn't ban sexual orientation discrimination and because the federal law doesn't. Uh, so he sued, and the judge concluded, based on circumstantial evidence, because they offered no good reason uh, for discharging him, they just kept saying, he broke the rules, he broke the rules, he broke the rules. And the, the judge said, well, he would infer discriminatory intent. And sort of the, the funny punchline to the case for me is uh, I held up on blogging about the case on my blog because I was using it as an exam question. And then when I finally blogged about it, I got an email from the judge who wanted to know whether my students agreed with his decision. So let that be yes. a lesson. The, uh, right. I was happy to tell him that they did. <laughs> Judges are paying attention to what you have to say, yes. as am I, and many, many other people. Thank you, Brett. So, and I'm going to end on my of note. Uh, Art already has spoken about it, and you wrote about it, so that's only fair. Uh, particularly significant, the 64-member board of directors of the NAACP voted on May 19th to approve a resolution supporting marriage equality, um, and this is all a, a decision that comes with only two members of the board dissenting. So another example of the um, different constituencies uh, coming out in favor of marriage equality, and that can only be a good thing for the movement. Um, that's all the time we have for today. Thanks for listening. To read the latest issue of Law Notes, please become a member of Legal or a Law Notes subscriber by visiting www le-gal.org. To read back issues, visit the Justice Action Center of New York Law School. And this and future podcasts can also be found online in iTunes or at legal.podbean.com. Thanks for listening.